Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly, for surrendering. Our scripture this morning is found in Numbers chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse number 4. I'm reading systematically through the scriptures uh, and have been in the book of Numbers for the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, You come out of Leviticus and go into Numbers and know that you're headed into Deuteronomy. And you uh, realize that uh, those, those guys wandering around for 40 years, it was rough. And it's rough to read about. Uh, but if you're going to read through the scriptures, you can't skip those books. But they're here um, in these five verses. Is one of the, it's just a great nugget, a great, um, a great uh, set of scriptures that are rich and powerful in their meaning and what they have to say to us even today. And Moses gives this account to us here in the book of Numbers. And it is uh, it's a great, great set of scriptures for us to look at as we move toward uh, Easter and as we think about the cross and we think about the symbolism of the cross and we think about what Jesus did for us there. Um, we get an early glimpse of, of that here in these five verses. Um, when I was a, a youth minister, when I was a student pastor here for uh, 13 years, we would... We would leave here a lot of times and go on trips. We would be going uh, so many different places. And a lot of times when we would travel, the, the organization that we were traveling with, they would send us a list of their rules for uh, the camp that we were going to or the conference that we were going to, Student Life, Mission Lab, whoever it was. They would have laid out for us everything that we should bring, everything that we should do, what not to, all those things. And so I'd give it to the kids. And then before we would leave, I would give them my rule, and I had one rule, and it was only one rule, and that rule was this, no whining. That was the one rule. You cannot whine. If you are going to whine, I will send you home. I will send you home for whining just as quick as I will for any other offense that you make because whining and complaining is contagious. And when one person starts to complain and one person starts to whine, then everybody catches that fever and it goes through a group. Um, So we would have that rule, and I I, I named it after one of our kids in the youth group because, bless her heart, she could, uh, my goodness, uh, she could find if the food wasn't like the food at home, the bed wasn't like the bed at home. So I named the rule after her, and we would, I would, when I would say, "What's the name of the rule?" Everybody would uh, give me her name back, and I'd say, "Okay." So, um, but it was um, that was what, and and it always seemed to to work to a great degree. But think about the situations you're in now. Think about the places that you are in, the 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 work that you're in, the family that you're in, the school or whatever it is that you're in. There's always going to be complaints. There's always going to be whining. There's always going to be people who are grumbling and who are upset and who just don't like what's going on or who don't, uh, people who just can't ever seem to be satisfied. And as believers, here's what we can do. We can join in the whining and complaining or we can pray for the person or the people in charge and then we can offer to help them. 
and see what we can do to make things better. Moses is thrust into a leadership position. Moses isn't bothering anybody. Moses is on the back 40 of his father-in-law's estate, and he's there with a herd. He's, he's, got, um, he's just there with his own thoughts and his own mind. He's left Egypt. He's gone, and he's married, and he's out here, and he's just enjoying. He's probably enjoying the solitude and the, and the quietness. And all of a sudden, God bursts into his life and says, Moses, I have a, I have a job for you to do. And Moses gives every, every reason why he can't do that job. And God takes those excuses and crushes every one of them. And then he puts Moses into the hardest leadership position that any man, woman, boy, or girl has ever been put into. I don't care what your position, I don't care what you're doing, I don't care what it is that you have, you will never be in a harder spot than Moses. Now, Numbers is divided up into two generations, two groups. Um, there is the generation that left Egypt, and they were complainers, they were grumblers, they were, they were whiners. And God said, because of your constant complaining and mumbling and grumbling, I'm not going to let you enter into the promised land of Canaan, but I'll give it over to your children. They will go in this second generation where you find that dividing line. What do they do? They complain and they grumble and they whine. And, and here's their two greatest complaints. Their complaints against the leading and the feeding. So let's look at these verses. Um, here in the first three verses of chapter 21, they have won a great battle. They've won one of the first battles that they'll ever win. But they um, win that battle. But the people in front of them won't allow them to pass through their land. The Edomites won't allow the Israelites to pass through. So now they've got to leave where they just won this great victory. And they've got to travel back to where they've been. And here's what happens in beginning in verse number Five, it says, from, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Sound like vacation with your children? But the Lord... But the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I, I was just thinking, as I was sitting here thinking about my sermon, and, and, and the choir sang that last song, there's life in the name of Jesus. There was life here when the people were obedient and did what God called them to do. Now this new generation is, no, is not radically different from their forefathers. We can see from this incident here, which takes place right after this great victory, they have defeated the Canaanites, 
So as I said, they've got the, the people of Edom won't let them travel through their land. It would have been a straight shot to Canaan if they could have gone through Edom. But the Edomites say, you can't travel through here. We've heard about you. you. This large group of people, if you come through here, you are likely to get inside of our land and take everything that we have. So we don't want to have anything to do with you. you we want you to go a different way. So they have to go, and so to travel now, they've got to head south, and they've got to go back to the Red Sea where they started from. And as they're heading back to the Red Sea, these thoughts are probably going through their mind. Are we going to travel in circles out here until we all die? All of our mothers and fathers have died. Our grandparents have died, and now here we are, and we're just traveling around in this wilderness and it looks like we're going to die. We've been sold this bill of goods that we're headed into Canaan. And maybe Moses just has these delusions of grandeur. And he talked us into coming out here and wandering around in this wilderness so he can feel good about himself and his brother and give his brother Aaron a, a lofty position. And, and, and we're all going to die because of it. And so they begin to grumble and complain about Moses and about God. And, and so they, they find themselves in the same cycle of grumbling as their fathers had, and they're complaining about exactly about the same thing. Some of you have been in church every all your life, probably since you were two to six weeks old. This was probably the first place that you ever came to was church, whether it was here or in another church. When you hear complaining in the church now, I bet that it is the same complaints that you heard when you were probably five, six years old the same things that we complain about, they just go around in cycles. So these people were no different. And they're complaining over the same things that the generation that God had taken. And so they suggest, hey, God, Moses has just brought us out here to die. They complain about the lack of food, and they especially complain against the manna that God had provided for them. Remember the story of the manna? The people were wondering how they were going to be fed. Moses is wondering how he's going to feed all these people. And God begins to rain this food down from heaven called manna. And the people go out and they put it in jars and they have it. Now, pre I've, I've listened to some preachers and Sunday school teachers in my life and they make that manna taste so good. They make it sound like it was probably the most wonderful meal that had ever been. It's like they're, they're, I've heard descriptions of it, and it sounds like you've got a medium-rare uh, ribeye steak with a giant baked potato that's loaded with everything you want it and a big jug of sweet tea. Far from it, folks. This manna was probably tasted something like a stale vanilla wafer. So these people begin to complain about it, but here's what, here's, here's what upsets God. It is God's provision. He gave them just enough for what they needed and enough to keep them alive and enough to keep them going because he didn't want them to get settled and satisfied there in the wilderness and say, hey, God's raining ribeye steaks on us every day. There's no point in us going over into Canaan. It can't be any better than this. So God gave them this manna to satisfy them, but to look and to say, we've got just enough of our provision now but when we get to Canaan, it's a land where the pastures are greener and, and thicker than anything we've ever seen, where everything is better than what we have now. But they lose their perspective. They lose their perspective because they allow complaining and grumbling to get a hold of them. They moan about the lack of water. 
So just as the older generation had in the previous chapter, chapter 20, they do the same thing. They're weary of wandering and wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. Now this generation had never been in slavery. All they've heard about is the good food and the good land in Egypt, and they're happy to go back to that. But their discontent, as they lose this perspective, their discontent leads to more discontent. God always gives us much more than what we deserve. And he has disdain for complaining and ingratitude. God, does the devil ever get on your shoulder and say, look at what old so-and-so has? Does he ever do that to you? Sometimes when I'm, coming, I'm headed to church on Sunday morning, I'll pass old so-and-so, and they've got a boat that costs more than my house, and they're headed to the lake for a couple of days, and, and the devil will say, look at there at old so-and-so, and they're a nice fancy boat, and they've, they've, got, they've got a much bigger house than you, and they don't go to church, and they don't spend all that time praying and all that time reading their Bible. They're enjoying life. Now, what do you say to that? Get thee behind me, Satan. Get there in, my, in the back seat of this car, uh, this, 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 uh, and, and let's get to where we're going. And you shut up because I know where you're headed and I know what you're mad about. And there ain't no bass boats where you're headed. Ain't no water. Amen. Preach it. Preach it. I'm fired up now. We're going to go for an hour. <laughs> but here's what we should do. When we feel the urge to complain and to whine, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul had these words to say to us about that situation. When we feel that way and we just feel like we want to complain about those who are uh, other people, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Man, you ought to write that down and go back and read it, because I want to tell you this. You cannot complain without gossiping. You can't complain about church without gossiping. You understand me? You can't complain about your neighbor without gossiping about them. You can't complain about your coworker or that person at school or whoever. You can't complain without gossiping. And I want to tell you this. God hates gossip. And I do too. But that don't matter. God now sends a harsh punishment to these people. Listen, their grumbling is no different than the people who were there before them. And it's the same as it had been for the older generation. So the Lord sends judgment upon this grumbling people, and he sends it in the form of a fiery serpent. And the bite of this serpent is fatal. Now Paul, when he's writing uh, there in Romans, and he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, he may have been thinking about this specific situation because the wages of sin and unbelief continued to be death to this generation just the way it had been for the old generation. But here, once again, as we see all the way from Exodus through Deuteronomy, all the way through, we see that Moses goes to intercede for these people, and he prays the very one who they're complaining and grumbling about. He goes and he, and he prays for them, and, and he intercedes for them, and God listens to him, and he gives them a way out. The Lord commanded him to make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at the serpent and live. Now they're looking the very thing that is troubling them and killing them 
Moses is instructed to make a pole and to lift that up. And anyone who looks at that, after they've been bitten, will live. Now, this is not the, the judgment nor the, re, the, the remedy is not something random. God just didn't, God just wasn't sitting around and, and saying, well, you know, they're complaining, so I'll just send a group of snakes in to bite them and teach them a lesson. He didn't say, well, you know, they're in the area of the desert where these, there are these snakes that hide up under the sand, and I'll just have these snakes come out and bite them. There's always a purpose and a reminder in everything that God does. does. Now, what he's doing here, he is giving them the full meaning of something. Because just about 40 years earlier, they have left Egypt. They've been freed from there. They know all of the Egyptian symbolism. And the greatest symbol in Egypt is a serpent. There on Pharaoh's crown is a cobra for everyone to see. And that cobra is representative of Pharaoh's power and his rule in Egypt. And so these snakes are, uh, when these snakes are there as a reminder, and it's a question that God is posing to them. Do you really want to go back and be subject to the power of the serpent all over again? See, when Jesus saves us and he saves us from sin, the devil is always going to try to get us to look back and to look at the sin that we were involved in and say, why don't you go back to that? When times are hard and when we're struggling and when we're troubled, he'll always show, show us the sin that we used to be a part of and say, why don't you go back and be a part of that? But we don't want to return to the power of sin. Now, the serpent is more importantly, it's a symbol of the ultimate enemy of all mankind, which is Satan himself. Because in the form of a serpent, Satan came and deceived Adam and Eve and caused the whole world to fall into a sinful condition. So as there, it's not the Lord who brought them out into the wilderness to die. Their death was due to the power. It was not due to his power failing to give them that what he had promised. But this death in the wilderness is a result of their sin and the sin of Adam and Eve. It's their refusal to submit to the Lord that leads to this bondage that's not the bondage of Egypt, but really the bondage of Satan. So now God has sent this powerful form of punishment to them, and we see the people re repent. Now, look there in verse number the people came to Moses there in verse number 7. People came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord so that he take away the serpents from us. God got the people's attention. God got the complete attention of the people there. And now they have to admit and confess their sin. He got their attention through a snake bite through people being killed by a snake bite. Look, what is it he's trying to get your attention with this morning? It's probably not a snake bite, but there's, there's probably some struggles and some, and some hardships and some worries and some doubts and some pressure and some different things that you're going through. Maybe you're in a cycle that you just can't get out of where you just continuously, you sin after sin after sin 
and you find yourself in that and you just can't get out of it, God said, and, and you, you find yourself in punishment after punishment after punishment, and God's using these things and he's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. It's not going to be a snake bite, but it's going to be something that he does to try to get your attention. These people understand the reason for their punishment and they begin their confession. And here's the cycle that they stay in. They rebel against God. God sends judgment. They repent and confess, and God forgives. And then read the whole Old Testament. They continue this pattern the whole time. But we have the promise of the New Testament. There in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to restore us to un- back to righteousness. It's the first verse I ever mem- memorized. But the acknowledgement of our sin... They had to come to Moses and they had to say, look, Moses, we know that we're sinning. We know that this is, this is happening because of what we're doing. God didn't just indiscriminately start killing us. It's because of the great sin in our hearts and in our lives. Moses, please pray to God on our behalf so that this stops. So that the acknowledgement of our sin is the first step in finding forgiveness and hope. What confession does, confession gives us ownership of what we've done. Confession, when we confess our sins to God, we're owning up to the fact that we have sin. We can't blame our circumstances. We can't blame our peers, our parents, or problems. Because someday I've got to give an account before God and answer for my own sin. And I won't be able to blame anyone else. You ever see these people on these talk shows in the afternoon? Bless their heart. Bless your heart if that's what you sit and watch. You ever see them? Everybody goes back and blames mama and daddy for everything they do. You ever notice that? Well, mama and daddy treated me bad when I was, and maybe they did. I know some people who have gone through some great physical or emotional abuse, and, 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 and there is some underlying factors there. But I've seen people on some of these shows, well, I, I just confessed I watched some of them. <laughs> Let me get a drink of water and clear my head. I've seen some of these people on there, well, mama and daddy painted my room fuchsia instead of blue and it's troubled me my whole you think I'm kidding but I've seen excuses like that or, or, or they didn't pay me the attention that, that I think that, that and you talk about th- this generation this entitled generation coming up now good grief we're in a world of hurt when this group gets uh, gets in charge listen I, I and, and I, I watch these things well, well mom and daddy they, they you know they, they ignore they, they bless your heart You're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account for you and you alone. And when you get that in your mind and in your heart and you let those things of the past go and you take responsibility for you and you give your life to Jesus, I guarantee you he's going to straighten those things out and you're not going to have to worry about those things anymore, all right? Get right with God. And here's where it all starts. I, we, we, I, I, I go to churches, and, and we go to these big conferences, and I, I'm guilty of it as anybody else. We go to these big conferences, and they turn out and turn off all the lights, and the smoke comes up, and the light shows come on, and, 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 and then a guy comes out, and, and, and he talks to us about how our church can be like his church. All right? It's never how your church can be like Jesus. Understand me? I quit going. 
It's never about how your church can be like Jesus. It's about how your church can be like my church. Five easy steps to 1,500 people. Bless your heart. Ain't no easy steps. Here is the first step in America that needs to happen. The church needs to repent. The church needs to repent because we've turned church into entertainment. We've turned church into come and we'll try to outdo what we did last week. And we and 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 and, and pastors who will take um, um, it, it, you 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 would do do just as well to sit and listen to Tony Robbins do a um, a, a self improvement talk today as they go to most churches in America. They'll throw just enough scripture in to make you feel like you, that you're at church. And here's the word that is always left out, and it's repentance. And it's why we are the weakest that we've ever been in our existence and why God is not blessing the church is because we lack repentance among ourselves. We don't want to admit that we need to change. We don't want to admit that because we lost an hour of sleep last night and because the rain sounded good, we just roll over and go back to sleep and let church, maybe we'll go back to church next week if we don't have anything more important to do. Let me read to you. Let me read to you this. And while I'm reading it, I want you to think about where this happened. This is an account of a revival that swept a city. This is, a, this is the account that was in the newspaper. There is a re deep religious feeling pervading the entire community. One that makes every other consideration a secondary affair. And makes every other consideration a secondary uh, affair and revival supreme. Our worst sinners are now our boldest advocates of the meek and lowly Jesus. Revival is now the chief topic of conversation. Not Alabama or Auburn, but revival. Men who 10 days ago were scoffers and blasphemers are now humble petitioners at a throne of love and mercy. Strong men, men who have faced death in all its forms with a fearless defiance, come trembling to the altar of prayer, begging the Christian men and women to pray for them. It is astounding as well as gratifying to witness the great change in our people. The pastor remarked that reality, by virtue of the goodwill and fellowship, should advance 100%. Indeed, it is a season of rejoicing in our town. It goes on, at this date, Friday evening, the meeting continues with great interest. This morning at 9 o'clock, the pastor administered the ordinance of baptism to 32 candidates, while seven were added by restoration, making a total of 39 additions. There are many who have professed Christ but have not joined the church. This is a grand, a glorious revival. Men who have not attended the meeting are professing Christ. Nothing like it has ever been known in our town. It is the topic of conversation on the streets. Indeed, a Christian influence has taken possession of our entire community. And the next article says this, the revival at the church closed last Sunday night with an addition of 44 members and 18 professions which will join other churches, making a grand total of 62 professions. This is something the like that has never been before in our town. It has been a gracious outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
It has gone out and took hold of parties who persistently refused to attend church services. Yet in their homes they were convicted and sought peace to their troubled souls in prayer at home and in the lonely hours of midnight they were pleading for mercy. Somebody tell me where that happened. Somebody tell me where that revival happened. Five seconds. It happened right here. It happened in this church. That is a historical account in a newspaper of a revival that happened in the church here. Wow. Did you, did you hear that? That is a revival that happened here in this church. Guess when it happened? 1886. 1886. There was great, if you know the history of our community, there was a great, there, there was huge things to be ashamed of and, and sinful things that had happened. And I can promise you that there some 16 years later, there were a group of people who got on their face before God and who begged God for, for and repented, begged God for forgiveness and repentance, and they prayed for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this community. And guess what happened? God heard them, and he sent a great move of the Holy Spirit here. Now, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot more distractions here than there were then. There are a lot more things that catch our attention than what caught our attention back then. But guess what? The Holy Spirit hadn't changed one bit. The Holy Spirit is still as powerful as he was in 1886. He'll be as powerful 10 years from now. Whether we ignore him or not, he stands and he wants and he's waiting on us to repent of the grumbling and the complaining and the whining and all the things that we do and the gossip and, and all the other sins in our lives. He's waiting on us and other churches to repent and he's waiting to pour himself out in the same manner as he did then. So the people repent, and God sends a pardon that is very much like a Christ-like pardon. This symbol is an, the serpent is an M, a symbol of the venom that's coming from the complaining lips of the people, and the serpent is the root of all of our sin, but its presence upon the pole required the people. Here's what it did. When the people had sinned and God punished them, they had to look at the source of their sin. They had to look and say that I am a sinner. I've got to look to this. Moses, our leader, has said straight from the mouth of God that the only hope for me now is to look to this, to this pole with this serpent. It's the only way I have to face my sin. I have to look and confess that I have sinned. And so... As a result, it's the same as Jesus Christ. Now, he, he, this morning, he's not only praying on my behalf, but he became a curse on a cross so that we could look to him and live and have eternal life. Christ crucified is the means that God provided for us to look at our sin and be saved because of, uh, from God's righteous judgment. God has... 
the right to judge us. And unless we look to Jesus, someday he will. But because I've looked to Jesus and because I have repented of my sins, the end time judgment that is coming for others has already taken place in my life. Jesus was, took my judgment for me at the cross and the punishment that I deserved was poured out on Jesus in my place. That serpent on the pole was not a magical cure for the snake bite. It was a sign that worked by taking the Lord at his word through faith. Moses preached to the people basically and said, when this is lifted, we lifted up in the middle of the camp, and when you have sinned and you're suffering for that sin, look to this for your healing and for your, your salvation. And the people who did, they put their trust in the power of the, of the Lord's victory over this evil. And they were healed. It's no coincidence that the Lord chose this means of healing the people because faith is the key marker of those who would enter the promised land. They had to, at this point, they had to exhibit faith to be able to go into the promised land. And without exhibiting that faith, they wouldn't make it. The unbelieving generation of their parents, including Moses and Aaron, they were excluded from the land because of their unbelief. Now, here's the, here, think about this. These people were going to cross the Jordan River and go into Canaan. And guess what many of these people were going to bear with them? Guess what was going to be significant about them? As they go into Canaan and they settle that land and they get this great land that God has described to them, and, they, and, and there one day they're sitting there in front of their pasture, in front of their home, and they're looking at their flock, and they're looking at all the things that God has blessed them with, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, they look down at their leg, and there is a great mark on their leg, a snake bite. And they look down, and they see that mark on their leg, and they see the promise of God out there before them, and they look down and they rub that mark and they think and they take a moment there and they thank God. They thank God that He made a way for them to get there to Canaan. They thank God that one day there in the wilderness, when they were complaining and griping and mumbling and murmuring, that God lifted up something for them to be able to look at and to be able to be healed and to be able to be forgiven of their sins. And there, because of that, they were able to enter in to the promised land. I hope that when we get to heaven, I hope that when we enter in, I hope that God gives us a symbol somehow on us of all of the wounds that, that were there, the sin that was in our life. Maybe, maybe there's a, a mark on us somewhere. And, and while we're there in heaven and we're, we, we're there for eternity, maybe every now and then we just look down and we see that mark on us and we say, God, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus going and being a curse for me. Thank you for him taking my sins on, on him. Thank you for him being my substitute there on the cross. Thank you for him going willingly and taking the wrath that you had in store for me. And because he did that, now I'm able to be here with you for eternity and enjoy the richness and fullness of life with you forever. 
man. You see, I'm going to make it. I've got a lot of marks on me. And I'm going to make it because of the marks that were put on Jesus. You see, there won't be a mark on me. And that analogy I just gave you, I'll be able to look to Jesus, and Jesus bore the marks for me. There won't be any marks on me. There'll be a a nail-pierced hand, and there'll be marks on Jesus where he took my beating in in, in my place. And he was there. He went for me. And because of that, I will enter in to eternity with him. Only those who believe could enter the promised land. For only those who believed would live. Now we're moving toward Easter and the story of the cross. We're moving there. And the title of this sermon is A Glimpse of the uh, an, uh, an Old Look, A Glimpse of the Cross. This morning, I don't want you just to get a glimpse of the cross. I want you to get a full view of what Jesus did for you. I want you to get a full view and a full understanding of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you, for you to someday be able to reach heaven and eternity with God the Father, unseparated paradise there with Him. And I want to remind you that there will be more who reject the cross than there will be who take the cross. And I want to remind you that those who reject the cross will spend eternity separated from God and never able to have hope again in their existence for eternity because of their rejection of the cross. A great account is given by Jesus in all four Gospels of the separation there that they will suffer. And it won't just be the flame or the fire of hell that's, that's secondary to the hopelessness that will be in the heart and the mind of that person for all of eternity. But you this morning have the opportunity to look to the cross and be saved. You have an opportunity this morning to look to the cross that Jesus died on, the, his, the sacrifice that he made for you, the sinless substitute that he was for you. You have the opportunity to take that this morning and know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus made a way. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to come to church on Easter Sunday morning knowing that you've been forgiven of your sins and as we preach and as we teach and as we sing about the cross of Christ to know that you have been forgiven of your sins and that you're going home to be with Jesus. What is it that you're struggling with this morning? What is it that you just keep picking up that sin and you keep grabbing hold of that sin and you just keep living that cycle of, of, of horrible existence and nothing satisfies you? Let me tell you this morning, Jesus will satisfy you. He will satisfy you. I'm not telling you that you won't wake up tomorrow morning and have problems. You'll still have problems. I'm going to tell you, I'm going I'm to give you this guarantee. If you pick up the cross, you're going to have problems that you never even imagined could happen to you before. I'll be, I, didn't, I was 28 years old, and I don't think I'd ever had a problem. Boy, I had them after I became a Christian. But guess what? Jesus walked with me through every single problem and every single situation that I'll ever go through. Jesus Christ is with me. And he promised his disciples before his ascension, he said, I will go with you always, even to the end. Promise hasn't changed. The promise is still there. 
grab hold this morning of the cross and never let go. Look to Jesus and have life this morning. As Kelly is going to lead us here in just a moment, if you need to know Christ as your Savior, would you come this morning and allow us to take Scripture and show you how to know that you have eternal life in heaven and that as you live through this life, you'll never be apart from that relationship with Jesus. Maybe you need to do uh, what honesty did this morning. Maybe you need to let everyone else here know that you're a follower of Jesus through the ordinance of baptism. Maybe you need to come and be a part of this fellowship and work with us in reaching our neighbors in the nations for Jesus. Whatever it is, would you come? Father, as we stand, Father, I pray that in the quietness of this moment that we would honor and be reverent and we would not do anything that would interfere with the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, this morning and I ask you save us all. Holy Spirit, point someone to Jesus this morning and save us all for eternity. For those who are here and, and have in a relationship with Jesus and they're just troubled and they constantly are, are troubled and, and have things going on, Father, this altar is open for them to repent and for them to be restored to righteousness. 